why don't you tell the audience, how do you feel about this time with us, this podcast? Do you want to keep doing it? Yeah, sure. I want to make money off it, but, I, but that's what I keep pushing. <laughs> Doesn't that make you feel good, Troy? Don't you feel motivated to start the episode now? Yeah, sure, but I want to make money. Well, I don't Morrissey have a tennis stuff. court at my second home or a family office. Let's be real here. I'm still working for a living. Brian, Brian, just to be clear, you got to make money too. Yeah. I mean, when his second tennis court flooded, he had to pay for someone had a, Someone had someone a squeegee that shit. <laughs> Welcome to People vs. Algorithms, a show about patterns in media, technology, and culture. I'm Brian Morrissey. I write the Rebooting newsletter and have a podcast of the same name. And I'm joined each week by longtime media executive and investor Troy Young and Alex Schleifer, former head of design at Airbnb and founder of Universal Entities. This week, we're trying something a bit different. And I promise you, there isn't too much talk about AI. Instead, we're focusing on decisions, how to make them, when they go wrong, and the tough decisions that are often forced on you. We go through life making a series of mostly inconsequential decisions. The longer your career goes on and the higher you pr progress in organizations, however, the more decisions you're expected to make, and they become like a core part of your job. Make enough decisions and you'll make plenty of bad ones. Um, we see this very clearly with the sharp U-turn that Silicon Valley CEOs are making right now from a series of hiring decisions that they all made during the pandemic. All of them made the wrong calls. And it's become something of a ritual for Silicon Valley CEO to announce thousands of job cuts and take responsibilities for the decisions that led to these cuts. And I wanted to discuss this topic because I'm fascinated by how people make decisions. And, and, and the how is often dictated by, by where you're coming from. And I think with Troy and Alex, we're all different. And so we approach decisions differently. So we discuss everything from how too often people hide behind data to abdicate their responsibility for making a decision to a framework Troy uses to make decisions. I hope you find it valuable. And as always, would love to hear your feedback. Uh, please send me an email. My email address is bmarsi at therebooting.com. Sure, let's start with you. Let's start with all the decisions that are being forced on people as we enter this period of quote unquote uncertainty and turbulence and whatnot. Well, what's the question, Brian? <laughs> it's I'm a discussion. A, it's a discussion program, not like me asking. I'm trying to make a decision here about how I should, you know, answer that question. Well, I have a lot of thoughts on this. Okay, um, good. You know, there's, I mean, I suppose that when you're making a decision and we're sort of narrowing this to a business context, you know, one way or the other, you're optimizing to something, right? So you're making a decision based on the health of your business or profit or future cash flows or present cash flows. You're making a decision about something quantitative or qualitative that I would call product or the relationship between a product and its market or the loyalty to a product or its ability to make money. And you're making a decision, I think, to things like people and culture and what kind of organization you want. And I think even potentially more broadly to 
the role you want your company to play in society or more broadly, like a more expansive kind of social responsibility. And I think that the nature of decision-making is essentially about trade-offs and understanding what you're trading off. So the easiest way to do it is either to say, well, I'm not going to make a decision because I'm going to defer to data or some type of quantitative tests when I can say, listen, this has got to be good for this reason and we're going to run an A-B test and get the data back and make the decision that way, which is fine, but in some ways an abdication of you know what would amount to be more, much more complicated, inevitably qualitative dimensions to a decision. But you know, there's a bunch of classics, Brian, and I think we can kick off the conversation with some of the classics. And the obvious one and the first one is that digital media broadly is fraught with difficult decisions that I think have been hard for people to make, in particular, making more money now by, say, increasing ad density on a page versus a longer term aspiration to create loyalty with your market. And that would include things like not just the number of ads per page, but things like do you put Taboola on your page and take a guarantee from Taboola or a cash commit of some kind from Taboola versus your decision to put more of your content there or recirculation. You know, that's the trap of, I think, media. And the challenge there has been because of the nature of distribution where you get a lot of one and dones, people coming in from Google, getting a piece of content and leaving. I would say the industry is characterized by a distinct lack of loyalty from the user. We've trained the user that you just grab an article and go so you're not loyal to to an experience and therefore you know you're constantly trading money for loyalty because loyalty is either too hard to measure or doesn't exist and you know that that's a that's a classic i would call that the classic digital media decision trade-off so i want to get get back to your your point about data right and and alex i think you would probably have a really good perspective on this because i feel like we've had we obviously have more data than we've ever had before, and it's very helpful. Data is in, important in making decisions. I don't know if you've noticed, I've, I've noticed over the years that data can easily become a crutch for decision-making. I think, Troy, you mentioned abdication, because at some point, decisions, you have to have conviction. And I feel a lot of people do not want to have conviction because it's riskier, right? If you just if you go with what the data says and you run some multivariate tests, you're outsourcing the decision making to some spreadsheet. And that is an easy way to basically not have to have responsibility for it. I mean, you might be held accountable for it, but ultimately at the end of the day, you're gonna say, well, I was I was following what the data said. We see this all the time and it, you don't watch football, right? But like football is basically caught between this. Like there's the data people who just follow the data, and then there's the old school guys who are like, I've got a ton of experience in this. But I'm wondering your experience on the product side particular, because I would guess that this is very acute there. Yeah, it's acute. You know, I'm a design-oriented product person, so I look at things maybe slightly differently to a growth manager. So I don't want to sound too pretentious and, you know, like I know everything. But I do feel like in Silicon Valley, we had access to so much data and so much capital that it became easy to outsource decisions to data and hire a bunch of people and let them make experiments, right? Because you had a billion people hitting your site. You could hire 10,000 engineers and run hundreds of thousands of experiments and with like tiny margins, create like hugely profitable businesses, you know, and that was Facebook. And it was fine if, if Facebook was the only one running like this. I have opinions about Facebook, but the problem is there was a, that philosophy kind of started permeating every part of Silicon Valley. And 
the real problem is that you lose control of the long-term outcome. And that's because any experiment that you make, especially if you're running a lot of them on a single surface, like an app, has a very short lifespan, right? The attribution, you know, to, to tell you, hey, product manager, A, this experiment you didn't, did was successful, that needs to happen in a very short amount of time. Otherwise, that attribution gets distributed across a million other factors, right? So if you're running a million experiments, how do you really know uh, what made a difference? And these companies, Facebook and Google, uh, I think became entirely data-led in their decision-making. And I've had a lot of heated conversation with people about that. And the problem for me was that I was looking at these really successful businesses doing it like that. And I didn't want to do it like that because I didn't want to lose control over our brand or over how we built. And also, I think a secondary effect of that is that you just train the organization never to be able to make big decisions. And I think that's what's happening to Facebook. You can't tell a company, hey, run wild, just growth hack, work around the margins, and all of a sudden tell them, okay, now we're going to think about the future. That company is not programmed to think like that. They'll never be able to. And it's the same with Google. And it's why I think companies like Apple are much more resilient because they have this executive courage to make big decisions and steer the company in one way, you know? And I think a lot of the companies right now that are firing a lot of people, it's because they just, during the pandemic, looked at the data hey. and decided to hire a but, bunch of but people. But wait a second. Everyone made this decision. These are all different people who are all very smart. And I just feel like the herd mentality of decision-making is, it's in every industry. So I, I'm like really fascinated by the fact that how every single company got the same thing wrong like how well, in the silicon world? valley silicon valley has a hive mind because people move around but you can see a few outliers in that have hive mind right and i think some of them i think apple didn't hire as much as other companies did they didn't make the same mistakes they stayed on they stayed the course yeah it's know? interesting because you brought up you brought up facebook and i would maybe push back because like i think mark zuckerberg maybe the organization is actually a conviction decision maker like he made he's made some big decisions that were out of conviction like you go back to newsfeed when everyone was squawking and now maybe he like just looked at the data and was saying there's always a difference between what people say and what they do so that's possible but if you look at metaverse i'm sorry there's no data that is telling what data could he be looking at to to say, but bet the company on this. This is a conviction decision, no? That makes my point, though. The, the company is not ready to line up behind that conviction because the company's never been asked to do it. You know, the incentive models within the company for years have not been around big decisions and long-term vision. So, I, you know, I don't know if a company like that can make big things happen anymore. Does that make sense? It, yeah. It does. I, it I, don't, does. I don't know if it's... You know, I mean, back to the design conversation, Alex, I think that you once said to me that design is about the courage to have to believe in your intuition and your conviction around that and when you don't you get what i would call the spork problem or let's call it i love the spork the spork problem or the swiss army knife problem where you try to be everything to everyone and the answer in many cases can't be let's do both and the problem with digital is it's infinitely malleable, meaning you can design and make it whatever you want to be, wherever you want it to be, right? It can do all these things at once. And so the constraints of physicality don't get in 
you know, get in front of you making hard product decisions in a lot of cases. So what a lot of people do at, at their weakest, even in response to either largely to a competitive threat, is they try to do both. So Instagram was a great photo application, but we needed to make it a video application, even though that the rules of video from in terms of how you present content, how you measure it, user experience, the algorithm, everything is different with video. So you get these products that are kind of shitty at two things. And, and, and I think that, that faced with competitive pressure and the ability to make anything in digital, you get a lot of stuff that is that migrates from its original use case. And I think that's where design takes real courage. Yeah, well, I think yeah. making products, a lot of the products made, the decisions were clearly made by committee, right? Yeah, I mean, I don't know if that was a, something Alex wants to respond to, but it was was. Well, I was, I was actually statement. trying to think as to whether or not, thank you for reminding me of how salient a point that was. What, which point, Alex? Just That it takes courage. I think um, I think the organization needs to be framed in a way that allows people to have courage because nobody wants to lose their job, you know. And so, if some functions like design and potentially more kind of visual leaning functions are maybe allowed to be a little bit more courageous, you know, stuff that touches brand, but I think a lot of organizations aren't organized like that. I did have a conversation once with someone that I won't name where we were in a meeting trying to come up with, you know, a first release of something. We know that we put stuff out there and we see how they work sometimes and update them. You know, that's part of the process. But there were three or four ideas. And I said, well, I think we should put our energy into this one. I'd love to hear if anybody disagrees or agrees. And a person, a product manager said, well, how do you know if it's good? How do you know that's the right one? And I said, well, sometimes you just have to make decisions because if we build it four times, we're just going to spread our efforts around four things. And I think there was a real lack of understanding what that could mean to make a decision like that off intuition and put it out into the world, you know? And it's not that I was 100% sure that it was the right one, but I was relatively certain it was not one of the wrong decisions. There's always like a thousand wrong decisions, 50 right ones, and try to pick one of the right ones and make it as good as you can. And we lost that a little bit in Silicon Valley because of scale, because of access to capital. And because, yeah, everybody's, it's really attractive to build everything for everyone. And Instagram is a great example, Troy. It's like, what is this thing anymore? Well, we also created the cult of the product person. So everybody wanted to be it. I think the product person was elevated above MBA, attorney, investment banker for a time, largely because of the influence of Silicon Valley. And when you called someone like a product person, it meant that they had this sort of level of intuition that this that didn't exist elsewhere. The truth is, is not, not everybody can be a product person because being a product person is like saying I'm a musician. It's, or maybe not even a musician, but I'm a hit song maker. It's, uh, it's a difficult designation because it does require a kind of elusive skill and intuition and ability to kind of match your ability to create something with something people want. That's very, very difficult. And the fact is lots of people don't have that skill. And it must be terrifying waking up every morning with those expectations. And so you rely to just running up 10,000 experiments, hoping one of them hits. You know? Well, that's not a product person. But I do love yeah. the line that said, oh, yeah, I'm a product guy. But wait, ex explain what the, a did product I, did person I just say that? is. Because there's like... A product person is someone who can invent, 
who can meet an unexpected, an unidentified uh, need. Yeah. Someone who can make something that's special. But it's yeah. become a managerial class, right? I mean, yeah, there's like an army it, of product managers right. and they're managers. They're, they're... It's as close to art as you get in an organization. Is that the yeah. real experience of product oh, managers? It's not, I, don't I mean, know. I don't know. I'll let Troy speak to that. I've had an interesting relationship with, with product managers. Some of the best people I've worked with at organizations were, were product managers and some also some of the you know least productive, I think. And I agree with Troy. I mean, I think you're asking somebody to be a hit maker. And at the end of the day, what I've realized is that it's usually product manager. Product manager has been turned into a function which means like it's like an engineer or a designer, while it should be something like a promotion because you're really good at something, right? And so to me, that has been an issue. Like the idea of a junior product manager, I never understood. Does that make yeah. sense? Well, isn't it because you come at things from like, for lack of a better word, a craft perspective? Like you have like a craft like that, you know, you've grown up through, whereas a lot of people want to skip that step. And I, I get that, right? They just want to go into product because it sounds good and it's, I assume it's I think well it's, paid. I mean, it's like that Rick Rubin uh, thing that goes through. I think the craft yeah. part of it, the fact that I can do a little bit of coding, the fact that I'm a designer, that I like to use tools, gives me a, an interesting perspective on things, right? And I think it helps me. But at the end of the day, I think it's about having taste and having conviction and being able to communicate these things to a wider group and getting everybody galvanized around this idea. And, I, and I've and i seen, you know, I think Brian Chesky, like CEO of Airbnb, is somebody, he doesn't know how to use the tools like I do. He's got a design background, but he's got that intuition when he sees something and the ability to make decisions and the ability to communicate them, you know? But those I don't people think are incredibly rare, be, aren't they? Yeah, yes, that's, that's, the that's point. my point. That's the whole point. That's the point, Brian. But, but we try to scale that. We try to scale the hit machine, and that's the problem. You can't scale it. Uh, yeah. They're incredibly rare. It's not because maybe they're, I don't know if they're born like that or whatever. It's also people who spend a lot of time just thinking about this all the time. You know what I mean? I might be good at some of the stuff I do, but you know, I've suffered in other areas, like filling forms or dealing with shit in my life. You know, it's like, it's like not everybody should be as obsessed with this stuff as well. There's an obsession attached. But that's another conversation. But yeah, but that's Troy's point, I think. Cool. Where do you want to go with the decisions thing? I feel like we got into Well, I got, an, I, got, I got another one that really- I feel like Troy's getting really, annoyed too, so well, I want to avoid that, that. That means we get a spike, a spike in listenership. I, I, uh, I'm not annoyed at all, Brian. I, I do think I would just put a, uh, uh, I would end that conversation, and this is just personal experience. <laughs> The hardest thing and the most important thing is what you don't include when you make those decisions. And I find that good product people have this characteristic, which is they're able to see what's really important and just kind of have the nerve and courage to say, don't put this other stuff in here. Because the truth is, is you're always, again, back to what you're optimizing to, and this is an also very very kind of apropos to a discussion about good design. The thing is, is that humans can't multitask very well. And so you can really only ever do one thing at a time. And you have to realize that from a design perspective is you have to focus on one thing, the one thing you're trying to communicate, the one function you're trying to en enable, the one experience you're trying to create. 
And that's really hard for a lot of business people to do because they kind of want it all. And, and so I think that that's the essence of this decision-making kind of paradigm, which is how do you really have the courage to figure out what the one thing is? I think there's another decision thing that I find, certainly that I've seen many times in my career, that's probably the hardest one for managers. And I would call it the middle performer problem. And what I mean by this is there's a lot of people in the world that work in an organization that might have a great virtue in what they can do. In other words, they're really, really good at something and really bad at a lot of other things. And sometimes they cause a kind of a constipation in your organization because they're, they're getting in the way of progress, but you can never come to terms with it because you always say, Jenny or Dave, is we can't imagine the world without them because they're so good at this and we need this and we're afraid that they don't bring this to work every day. But the fact is, is that they also affect the organization in lots of other ways because they're getting in the way of progress, either by their personality type or how they approach problems or what they're not good at. And what you really need to do in these cases is have the courage to fire the person. But you can't bring yourself to it because they are the middle performer. They're the person that you can't see doing without. And what I found is that when you do find a way to either redeploy them or fire them, your organization moves forward in ways that you didn't expect. And so I think that's a very important and a very real, real case here of decision and its inverse, in the inertia of not making a decision around people. That's, that's yeah. such a... That's such a good point, Troy. As someone who's sat in a lot of performance reviews, I think the stuff that happens really quickly are the really high performers and then the really low performers. Very easy to reach agreement there. And then there's some people who bring, yeah, some, some positive stuff to the table, but don't perform in other ways. It's hours of time trying to, to figure out how to handle yeah. those folks. And it's, but and it's isn't, isn't it's, the it's hard, hard to thing fire, there? right? Like nobody it, wants to fire anyone. Yeah. But you're also trying to decide as part of the decision whether it's that person or whether they were just miscast by you. And I, th I find a lot of times organizations blame the person versus themselves. Go figure. It's just like when all of the muckety mucks are getting together and deciding like how to make these numbers work. They never look at themselves. They, they I don't know. And maybe, maybe I don't know. Was, I look maybe... at the publishers. None of the editors decided to fire themselves. They decided to fire the uh yeah, I mean, that's probably true. But I, I think that, you know, just to give people a little credit, every time I've been in a performance meeting, the, the hardest thing is not to stop people from firing people. People really don't want to fire people. It's it's the hardest thing to do. Oh, yeah. And and the amount of folks I had to talk down from, you know, keeping somebody on the team, which they knew wasn't performing and and, you know, willing to try all sorts of things to make that work. I think in general... I think by the time it happens and the person's on the other side receiving it, you know, as a company, you need to communicate things in a certain way. So it sounds a little bit cold, but what I've noticed happens in the room is a lot of time spent, you know, as real humans talking through that stuff. But to Troy's point, a lot of time it's actually not good for anyone. You know, like somebody needs to make a call and hopefully that's good leadership. I know that a couple of times I've come in and sounded a little bit harsher to help a manager make a decision because it needed to move on and then felt like shit for the rest of the day because somebody had to. So 
that that type of stuff uh, sucks. And I also think a lot of managers aren't trained to fire. Like, you know, I think a good question to ask a manager is, you know, have you ever fired anyone? Because that stuff is hard and horrible. Yeah. Trey, let's talk about like uh, media companies right now, publishers, let's just say. They're facing a whole bunch of different challenges. And a lot of them, there's a lot of just basic economic uncertainty right now from everyone I talk to. That's the word that keeps coming up. And navigating that's obviously difficult. Some tough decisions were already made with with cutting people, et cetera. What are the hard decisions that you see coming down the road this year for like, let's just say big digital publishers? So many things just came to mind, Brian. The first is generally speaking, there's there there's a couple ways to change your media organization, right? Like you can say, we need to sell more effectively, or we need to organize our sales team to, you know, differently than we have in the past to accelerate sales growth, or we need to change our ad products a step underneath of it, or we need to offer better pricing or better service, all of which I would say are constrained to the publishing organization. But the harder ones are the thing that we're making, the content that we're making, whether that's, you know, video or text content or event platforms or whatever we're making. That needs to change for us to change our ability to make money and to orient the business around the future, et cetera. So what you're, you're faced with there is changing a much larger kind of part of the organization and waiting for it to materialize because you're going to have to change what you create. That hopefully changes the reaction of the audience, that you convert that into ad product, et cetera, and then you make more money off of it. And if you look at digital publishing, it's been so difficult because when your need, when your revenue needs change, you have to go back to the edit organization and say, hey, guys, we can't write point of view content or we can't write news content. We have to write comparative shopping content because we need to monetize via affiliate. And you, you just like it felt like every six months or every year there was a new thing we had to do. Which either, which more often than not was in addition to all the other things that we were doing. Yeah. Right. And, and so people didn't like to make those trade offs. They're like, well, we need to write more affiliated content or we need to make more vertical video or we need to tweet more or we need to do, you know, whatever it is. But by the way, you still have to keep the machines ticking and feed Google. And so the decisions, I think that it really affected editorial organizations that just had, you know, sort of, task upon task layering onto one another because they just had to keep making more things to feed more channels to preserve the business. And it was it's really hard to make trade-offs. So the biggest one and the hardest one is to say, we're a free media company that gets our bread buttered because we, we, we feed Google and we then monetize that with direct ad sales and programmatic and all that. And then what you have to say is, wait a minute, guys, we're going to be a subscription media company. And as soon as you say that, it changed the, you know, you suddenly you're like, well, we have to make a different kind of content, a better, a deeper, a more important kind of content that's going to incense someone to say, okay, I'm willing to subscribe to it. That change, particularly because the subscription game takes so long to get traction on, that change takes a long, long time and requires a huge amount of courage. So today, to get to your answer your question, today what's happening is the gig is up. And there were so all of the things that we trained these companies to do, or the people in these companies, which is, 
you know, get more page views, go after programmatic, get the affiliate lined up. You know, we're going to go and we're going to make more video for YouTube. All of these things are facing diminishing marginal returns. And so it's like an oh shit moment. It's like, what do I do with these hundreds of people and this organization? Because we got to invent a new way to make money and we have an enormous cost structure. Yeah. I think that's I don't know like, if that. No, that's that a very salient point. I'm actually going to give you a compliment here, Troy. What? Because it reminds me of, and I, I always go back to it and I'm reminded of it. I remind myself of this, like when I uh, go forward with the rebooting is like the major and minor point I remember that you made, like. You need to figure out your major and your minor, and you see people who try to be general studies and do everything, and that that can work, I believe, for the first year. But at some point, you need to you need to choose a major. And I think publishers have been in general studies, humanities for a long time, but by necessity to some degree. But you can't do that like now, and and making the hard decisions. Like I was talking to someone at a publisher who just made cuts, and I was like, well. I'm always interested. I mean, it's it's horrible the the human you know part of it, obviously. But I'm also interested in, well, what does this say about where you see the industry going and your place in the industry going? And I said, well, where are they cutting? Because that will tell me where their priorities are. And it's like, well, no, it's just across the board. I'm like, that that seems weird. Like because like why would you go through all the horrible parts? of cutting people, and, and it affects not just the people cut, but the people who, who remain behind. It really is traumatic to an organization without actually getting the benefits of reorienting it. And I see this, It's a lot of it is in news publishing. Like I was always amazed over the years, and, uh, and some of this is the unions, but like buyouts. Like I can't think of a worse way to reorient your organization than to be like, okay, well, we need to like cut down uh, on our costs. And so we're going to like ask for like volunteers to take a buyout to pay, that we can pay. And obviously the most marketable people would be more likely to take that. I, I don't know. I just feel like this is one of those problems that I see repeated all the time in publishing. And I think it goes back to la lacking conviction. That's yeah, I mean, great, it depends. Great point. It's a Good great point. point. I mean, I think if you think that your strategy is correct, but you just need to be leaner to survive a little bit longer, which is what's happening to a lot of companies, you know, today who can't raise enough money in tech, at least, then it makes sense to cut across the board and offer people buyouts. Although I agree with you, buyouts often give the opportunity for some of your best people to leave because they know they can get hired somewhere else. But yes, otherwise, that companies having refocused on certain parts of their business should make you worry sometimes. And I think the other thing is, is the companies that have come back for a second round of layoffs six weeks, eight weeks later, I think that tells me that they have no idea what they're doing. And I can't imagine people within those organizations having much faith in their leadership. I'm sorry, the economy has not like fundamentally and the market has not fundamentally changed in six or eight weeks. That to me, it's hard to maintain credibility, I think, as someone who uh, has spent most of his career in the cubicle class. Right. But but I would just challenge you on that, Brian. I think that that, that smacks a bit of naivety. J oh, that's just... what you boss class always tell us in the cubicles. Well, but I just want you to understand how it goes. So what happens is you have a deteriorating financial position. Your P&L is not looking good. Sales aren't coming in where you thought they were. You're like, holy shit, we're not going to make our number. 
And and I think, you know, largely speaking in big organizations, you're trained to to bring the number in. And you sit down with your CFO and you map out all the savings you need and how that translates into headcount. You say, let's rationalize against what the objective of, of, of the, you know, how we're going to orient the business to the future. So we want to cut here and here and here and here. Then you bring in the rest of the people into the your management team and you say, you've got 23, you got to cut 67, you got to cut 25. And you, you try to fairly and responsibly allocate those reductions to the people on your team. And with the pressure inside is don't cut so much, don't cut so much, don't cut so much. So you tend to look at your situation optimistically and you then hope that, you know, sales are going to materialize, blah, blah, blah. The economy is going to get better or what, you know, people are going to sell more advertising and it doesn't happen. And so, yeah, that's a mistake. But in fairness to the big bosses, as you like to kind of characterize them, that are cold and don't ever fire their own and all of themselves and all of that, you uh, you you, See, it's you all about different to... points of view. We got we got we got roles to play on this podcast, Troy. I'm, well, I'm glad you're embracing yeah. your role. Right. I I don't I don't. The sometimes uh, we need to look a little bit more empathetically and expansively at the problem <laughs> set. And and so yeah, you maybe cut a f- too few people, and you do it because. Maybe, just maybe, you didn't want to so many people to lose their jobs. Yeah, but I mean, I'm kind of with Brian on this one. I think yeah. that's a good point. I, I think that's a good point, Troy. And no, I mean, look, uh, the, the, the one thing you need to do and keep telling yourself when you're doing a layoff is that it's hard, but you only want to do it once. And, and the organization is going to push back. But you got to be really clear about your numbers. And six weeks feels like a really short time. And we've seen these kind of trailing. Six weeks firings. was an arbitrary number that Brian made up. Well, well, but but it's been happening, right? And then you see, you see, it kind wasn't. Of some it of was, the, there was there was it was there's a specific example. I don't want to mention but, them, but there was right. There, so there's you have these trailing layoffs that happen that makes that hurts everyone more. I think in the end, it makes leadership look like it's you know doesn't know what the fuck it's doing and i think it can happen sure but it really shouldn't i have uh i have from a previous thing that i worked on six five or six laws of trade-offs that apply to this that i think are worth revisiting briefly if you guys don't mind i know this yeah i think brian's got 10 minutes so let's go through them quickly okay well let's do it there's somebody there's somebody pacing outside my we work room it's fine okay he'll be okay Obviously, the larger and more complex the existing business, the harder it is to make trade-offs, that under, particularly the ones that risk undermining your core business. And that's the, the territory of classic disruption, right? Introduce someone, a competitor introduces a product or service that's hard for an incumbent to imitate because doing so will compromise their legacy franchise. So when it's core, when it's big, it's harder to do. Number two. Trade-offs are more difficult to execute when the user base is heavily invested in the existing solution. So that's like the trade-off of changing Instagram that alienates the Kardashians. So any change that you have to make, which really, really affects a core part of the user community, particularly when they feel a deep sense of ownership in that product, very, very hard, hard to do. The other is what I would call the crack pipe rule. And it's immediate cash is trade-off crack, right? Once it touches your lips, it's hard to put down. And so what you do is you forget about the long-term, like losing your teeth and your family and all the bad things that come with crack. 
So, you know, pure audience ARB as an example is fine if that's your game, but it never lasts, ever, ever lasts. And the, the trade-off crack is like Taboola. Get it on your pages, it's impossible to ever get off, right? Autoplay so you video have to, with sound. Right. Give me another hit. <laughs> right. Give me another hit of the crack pipe. I would say trade-offs are much more difficult to make in multivariate scenarios, like the advertising consumer example that I just gave. It's yeah. one. It's much easier t- when you have one constituency to please. And I would say here's another one. If you really understand the value you offer a customer, you with me? If you really understand that value, then you can make good trade-offs. Because saying let's do both is an abdication of your responsibility. You'll never be great at anything. Aren't all publishing businesses like literally the multivariate businesses in that like who you're optimizing to is changing constantly. Sometimes you're optimizing to the audience if you want to get subs. Sometimes you're optimizing to the advertiser. Like sometimes you're optimizing to the platform. I think that's the problem with media businesses. Like that's why the products suck, man. I mean, I think that those were really, first Troy, those were really good points. I had a sixth Um, one. Oh, you did? (laughs) It's like a rule of five. It's like nature. Six is weird. Well, this one well, I was ahead. trying to understand what it meant. It said your trade-off logic Joints, is trade-offs. only... You got you to make difficult decisions, so cut one. Yeah. The logic is only as good as the behavioral mechanics that inform it. You're a pebble in the sea. And, oh, uh, okay. We end Zins. Oh, my God. It's a deep one. one. I would cut from the bottom. Cut that one. All right. All right. All right. I think that's, I think that's pretty close to you can't do both. Yeah, exactly. That yeah. was always the thing with, with editing because editing is a lot of like, you just got to make decisions. The writer basically outsources the decisions about what to take out. That's why like all like sub stacks and like mine particularly are too long because like nobody's making the decisions to cut shit. But it was always like, dude, should we cut from the bottom was always like the laziest editor thing of like magazines. It's like, oh, we got to. You know, the, the aphorism in product management is what, Alex? Good, fast, and cheap? Pick two? Yes. Yes. That's good, the, fast, the, and cheap. The, pick two. The decision triangle of product management. You can have it good and fast. No. Can you have it good and fast? You can have it good and fast or you can have it good and cheap, but you can't have it good and fast and cheap. Yeah. Although, you know, that. Yeah, you know, I think sometimes... Can you do good, slow, and expensive? That's where I want to be. I mean, I think, look at Facebook. They've been spending billions of dollars over years, on, and they still don't have a good metaverse. So, I don't know. Depends on the scale, I guess. I think that was good. Are we, are we, are we reaching the ends of the decision? Well, we are, but we need a good product. I'm looking forward to sharing this one with you, and it was informed by my weekend. And I, I, there's a bit of a build-up to this, so just be patient. Oh, dear. Please. I'm, I'm interested in brands that are rooted in imperfection. And I used to have this thing, Jill would, Jillian, my wife would say to me, she would always refer to my friends as the idiots. And cause they're, they're, most of them are as or more imperfect than I am. And so I love that expression and the word hadn't been outlawed. So I, I used to have these events called idiot weekend and I would make swag and we'd invite all the idiots and they were maybe like a cast of characters from my whole life, all of them deeply, deeply imperfect. And, and so when I was young, I, I had this idea that I would create a, a company called Negative Brands. And my first negative brand was called Disappointment, TM. And I thought that it was the perfect kind of anecdote to everything that brands aspired. Like it was the opposite of what brands aspired to be. Like they represented this kind of fake imperfect, or this fake perfection. And I love the idea of disappointment as a brand because, you know, when you buy something, you ultimately you're always disappointed. 
And so anyway, that's where this whole thing started. And then this weekend, I go to Buffalo. And I go to Buffalo because because I like football a lot, but also because a friend of mine who, who I care about a lot convinced me that I had to, he's a massive Buffalo fan. I had to go to the game, the playoff game with him. And what I discovered is I discovered a lot of things. I discovered that the town of Buffalo is a beautiful place. And everybody in that town is a football fan. And the funny thing is what the brand of the Buffalo Bills does for them is the brand represents really a sort of lovable losers. Like they've made it to four Super Bowls. They've never won one. They always, if you drive into Buffalo, the sign below, welcome to Buffalo should read, there's always next year because they always seem to kind of fuck it up. And they and there's this great community around the idea that of this brand of sorrow that is the Buffalo Bills. It is a really brand that's so important to this community that's about, well, we never quite get there. And, and I love that. And it, it, it's, it's a great product because it brings people together. It's community. They share in their sorrow. And it's this kind of people love it that don't live there. There's a lot of Buffalo Bills fans that, that live all over the country. And it's a small market team and all that. But it's, it, there's this kind of loserdom to the brand yeah. that people kind of love. It's a catalyst for community. So just a couple of last things. And Brian, I would invite your, your comments on this. But the, and, and Alex, so the one was, I was so concerned about the brand of Buffalo. I think that the bookies got the odds on the game all wrong. Because, you know, Buffalo was meant to be the best team this year in the NFL, but my take is they're Buffalo, they're losers. And so I bet heavily for the Bengals. And that bet paid off and, and, and paid for a large part of my trip, fortunately. So I, I'm very happy about that. So I hedged. And then I was thinking, well, what are other brands that are like this kind of, that have this quality or characteristic? And some things came to mind. There are many in music, whether that's like, you know, losers like the Sex Pistols that people love for that reason. Or in automotive, there's, you know, the I think the Saab brand was about that. It's kind of this quirky, weird, shitty car that everyone loved. Maybe Crocs. I think that's or a, a North like American that. point of view. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'm going to open it up to the floor right away. I think there's a lot of dogs that fit in this category, like short legs or pushed in the face or they have no hair. And, you know, people like them for that reason. So that's my product of the week. It's the Buffalo Bills. It's a great brand. And it's a great brand just because it represents sorrow. Well, it's authenticity, right? You know, it's wabi-sabi. You know the Japanese aesthetic of wabi-sabi? Right. It's rooted in imperfection and transience. God, going to the gift shop, Brian. The gift shop there was like going to the gift shop at the Vatican. I mean, it was like people were crazed buying all this junk. I mean, I'm an Eagles fan. I, I understand this. The problem is like... I'm reminded of of the Red Sox. Like they used to be lovable losers, and they actually called their team when they won the World Series. They were nicknamed the Idiots. You know, Johnny Damon and all the they were shaggy haired. The Yankees were you couldn't have hair below the collar and no beards and certainly no tattoos. I mean, these days you can have face tattoos, but th- times have changed. The problem is like lovable losers end up they don't stay that way ideally unless they're Cleveland, and you know. Buffalo probably had the most talented team in the NFL this year, other than the Philadelphia Eagles, who are going to win the Super Bowl. So it's, I mean, I get it. I, you know what? I, I don't want to make predictions, but they're not going to win the Super Bowl. Oh, God. Uh, this is turning into the text chat. The, I'm going to leave now. This no, no, no. The 49ers are going to win the Super Bowl. 
Are you one of those people who like who becomes like a football fan of like places you lived for like two years? Yes. Well, it's not as bad as the people who root for the Cowboys. I think that's pretty honest, though. I can't think of any brands that are like that that aren't like people or no. Well, I think what people want in like brands typically is aspiration and they don't aspire to be losers, right? Like you always want, I think that's, but I think it, it works better when it's like personified to some degree. Like I don't, despite Wabi Sabi, I think most people don't want to pay a premium for shit that's a little dinged up. I mean, there's, there's a couple of things, you know, Imperfect Foods was a good idea. You know, it's just like about delivering all these. Uh, oh, Misfits? Cast- I used to get that. Yeah. Yeah, and then um, some gnarly looking vegetables. Yeah, but they're they're tasty, and and I don't know. I think there's ironic brands, but not that many that really embrace that imperfection. Because well, imperfection um, must offend you, right? I mean, we well, imperfection works as a brand idea when you can see yourself in it, and when the community that forms around the brand is about healing because of that imperfection, right? So you you know, I'm gonna say I think we like imperfection imperfection because we like the underdog as well and sometimes it feels like that you know we root for the underdog and i think in the beginning elon and tesla was kind of one of those brands where he was like to see this coming i like it i think that in the beginning people were kind of rooting yeah okay sometimes the doors don't close but all right cars are late and he would tweet like oh we're about to shut down or i'm sitting on the floor of you know responding to people when they were saying shit was broken on their cars and he was tweeting at them and it felt genuine that he, you like you were kind of participating in the, this experiment with him. And I think it actually, it's funny because it's such a kind of polished product, but at the same time, you felt there was trust between you and the producer, at least in the beginning, I felt. So maybe that's a brand that fit that in the beginning. I don't know. Yeah. Spicy take, I know. I have a bad product from the weekend. I was with, my, my friend brought his son and he's like really into gear and how things work and you know, home electronics and all that. And we got to the hotel and the shower, it was a Moen shower in the hotel room and it was like a human car wash. It had seven heads and an electronic uh, flat screen controller. And I couldn't figure out how to turn on the shower in a way so I could just have a shower. And it had all these incomprehensible digital controls. And so my friend's son had to kind of show me how to turn the shower on, which has really felt like a vision of the future. And then he turned on, they had mood lighting. So you could do calm or, I don't know, whatever, calm or like agitated or whatever. And so he turned on the pink lights. He's like, look at this. We can turn on pink lights in here and I can make aroma. Uh, There's a, there's a, steam setting that will shoot out like eucalyptus or whatever and i couldn't figure out that evening how to turn the light off which made me feel terribly old so I had to leave mm. the light on in the shower anyway this is I, a problem ch- of hotel rooms that this is goes into the travel thing and i i love the travel thing because they're overly complicated and they need to be simplified greatly because it's very stressful to not know how to like put down the blinds or turn off the lights and stuff like this. And my view is like hotel rooms in general, because people are in an unfamiliar place, should really think about when they're making their decisions, what can we take out rather than what can we add? I was in a hotel in Miami in December, and there was a pull DJ button that was available to me. I don't know what what, what it did exactly. And nobody, I asked people at the hotel, they couldn't actually explain to me why what the pool dj button is but i think this is an affliction of all hotels i think anybody that decisions mm-hmm. yeah i mean this is 
near and dear to me. Uh, hotel rooms are often designed by someone who's obviously never slept in one of them, so you can't charge your phone somewhere practical, or that, or you pick a shower that requires a manual. But also, like I think to all the other designers, this is a message: industrial designers working on faucets, showers, just fucking stop, stop. There's a way that everybody understands where you can go hot or cold and turn the thing on or off or send it to the shower, to the, you know, whatever. Like baseline, all of this shit should work. I don't understand why we still have usability issues with showers. That's crazy. This one had iPad hammered to the desk and you could control everything in the rooms, drapes, lighting, all of that. If you, if you were diligent, there's no way that my mother could have ever figured out how to turn the lights on. And But the issue with the shower subsystem is it wasn't connected to the main iPad system. So the lights in the shower could not be turned off with the great big iPad that was controlling the rest of it. Troy knows that I'm very much into technology and gear. My home is what you would call a smart home, right? All my lights are smart. But the rule here is that everything I can do needs to be available via a real button on a wall that somebody's going to switch. Because I never want to get the phone call if somebody's staying over. How do I turn off the lights? How do I turn on the TV? That's stuff. Hey, is Al Alex, watch ridiculous. this, guys. Watch this. Okay, Google, turn off garden. You see that? That's yeah. great podcasting. Yeah, the That's lights good. went slightly dimmer on Troy's face uh, for all the listeners. <laughs> Very was, exciting. We, we, we wish you were here with us. Okay, Google, turn on garden. Very, very excited. But we could do the we could do a whole episode on on the hotel room usability crisis that's that's out oh, there. Jesus, it doesn't get enough attention out there. But I think, as someone who wants to start a brand called the View from Premium Economy, I, I would love to discuss this. Yeah, or the All brand right, I think we should look into starting is disappointment. Disappointment? What? What's TM. disappointing? Yeah, it's just a brand. It's called disappointment. Just I think it would be great on a T-shirt. It's t-shirts, and when you order them, they're always slightly too small. Thank you so much for listening. As a reminder, the best way you can support this podcast is to rate and review it. This helps people find this podcast. And also, if you really do enjoy it, please refer it to other people, because that is the other way that people find podcasts. And this is why podcast discovery needs to be solved. We'll be back next week with a new episode. Troy, do you want to say something to the audience? No, I just think that they should appreciate the smugness-free zone. I didn't think that we were smug. No, you're saying others are smug.